Hey, Rachel, what's the deal with Celine? Oh, which part, Miles? The human sacrifice? The apparent immortality? Or the thing where she's friends with rocks? Uh, all of it? Okay, well, first of all, Celine's an external. Really? Um, she, she doesn't look like a metal Kirby giant from space. Oh, no, no, no. See, you're thinking of the Eternals. Actually, you're really thinking of the Celestials who created the Eternals, but that's all a moot point because Celine's actually an external. So what are externals? Well, they're these nigh-immortal mutants who hang around the fringes of society pulling the strings, like Kendra, the woman who set up the Thieves, I mean, sorry, the Thieves Guild and the Assassin's Guild in, in New Orleans. So Highlanders, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's even hinted pretty heavily that the reason Celine's outlived the rest is that she She's been killing them and absorbing their essences. So she's the only one left? Well, there's Cannonball. What? I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 30th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very, very favorite superhero soap opera. So this time we're going to be covering a lot of ground. We're going to be talking a lot about New Mutants, I think 11 issues, which may be a record for us. And we'll be catching up with Uncanny X-Men, so that we'll be about on the same month-to-month page for each book. What we're building up to, we're not hitting it this episode, is the Bill Sinkavich run. I gotta say, going through these 11 issues, they're good, but I've got this feeling of anticipation, like I know we're building up to my very, very favorite stuff. Man, it's like the month before Christmas if I liked Christmas. We've talked about Bill Sinkavich a whole lot. Just as you know, our favorite New Mutants artist, one of our favorite comics artists, the dude's kind of worth it. I mean, he brings a visual style to New Mutants that's more distinctive than the writing. Not that Claremont's writing isn't amazing, but we have Claremont writing the entire X universe at this point, and Bill Sinkavich's art, which is so different than the house style, is really what differentiates this book from anything even remotely near it. And it's not just the art either. It's the increased importance of characters I really love and just working towards what I think of as the definitive lineup and the definitive era and the definitive dynamics of the New Mutants. We're almost to my New Mutants and we're close enough that I can see these characters in this book becoming them. Yeah, I mean, for me, the New Mutants, they're just these nine characters. You know, it's, it's basically once everybody's gathered, but before the X-Factor kids, uh, you know, Boom Boom and Richter and all of them move in. Not that I don't love those characters, but for me, New Mutants, it's, you know, the original five and the four that uh, that get added in over the next, I don't know, 10, 15 issues or so. It, it, it's a wonderful combination. And honestly, I don't know how this book so successfully juggles so many characters at once, but it pretty consistently does. Well, whether it's Claremont's run or Louis Simonson's run or whatever. It's tremendous, tremendous ensemble book. And that's something that I think we really do see in these arcs. The early story focused very, very heavily on Danny Moonstar. The 11 issues we're covering today move very, very fluidly between other characters with, you know, one character is the central one, but other stuff going on with the others in the background. Yeah, and I mean, I think the book itself is also finding its own feel, which is distinct from the X-Men, just like we talk about how it visually does with Sienkiewicz. Um, Not that the artist uh, Sal Buscema for uh, this arc isn't totally fine and serviceable. He absolutely is. But as far as the book's narrative, what we find is it's really less about these big, crazy superhero battles and stuff. And it's more... I don't know. Like, I remember uh, Kurt Busiek was talking about the Silver Age as boarding school adventures, and it feels kind of like uh, like that here. These are kids who go by their real names. They don't generally go by their code names. They're distinctly not superheroes. I mean, there's a point we're going to come to where there's a crisis. 
they go over the fact that if there's an emergency and the X-Men aren't around, what they're supposed to do is call the Avengers of the Fantastic Four. They're not supposed to dive in. They're not superheroes. If the X-Men are like, you know, Sam Spade, they're the Bobsy twins. (laughs) They are not licensed for this shit. I like the idea of, you know, they're supposed to call the FF or the Avengers. You know, it's like, hey, if something happens, tell an adult. If something super happens, tell a super adult. Well, and it's specifically just if there's an emergency. So I'm I'm imagining them just being like, yeah, could we talk to the Avengers? We can't figure out how to get the cable to work. (laughs) We were fighting Kang. Freaking Kang the Conqueror. Your cable doesn't matter. Well, make it a world worth living in. <laughs> Look, the, the New Mutants have pretty strong feelings about TV. That's true. I mean, we've certainly seen uh, Roberto DaCosta's love of Magnum P.I. I think we mentioned an episode or two ago uh, that they watched Twin Peaks, despite the fact that Twin Peaks apparently takes place in the Marvel Universe. Oh, and Magnum of. P.I. is going to be back this episode, too. Anyway, though, let's let's talk about kind of where we are at this point. So New Mutants is still a pretty new book at this point. I think we've only covered the first, what, the graphic novel and the first six issues, right? Right. And so far, it's been very, very heavily integrated into the rest of the Marvel Universe. We've seen it cross over a lot with the X-Men and really be very dependent on X-Men storylines. It's also crossed over with another much less well-known Marvel property, uh, Team America. And, you know, we talked about New Mutants getting its own voice in this arc. And I think a big part of that is that this is really the first time that it does stand alone. It helps if you know what else is going on. But you could be reading these 11 issues of New Mutants in a fair degree of isolation. I mean, I think there's one X-Men issue that ties in very directly, which is 180. But otherwise you could pretty much get through these and still have a fair idea of what was happening. It lets the book establish a distinct voice in ways that it can't when it's continually pulling from other corners of the Marvel Universe. Really, that's what this next arc is all about, finding that distinct voice. So when last we left our heroes, they had just had an adventure with Team America. And Team America, as you may recall, are five motorcycle guys with the power to create a sixth motorcycle guy. Based on a series of rebranded Evil Knievel action figures, they're terrible. And for some fucking reason, they're still hanging around at this point. More pertinently to this, though, issue six ended with an explosion with karma disappearing. Right. And we actually don't really see what's going on. We just see the, oh, no, explodo after Silver Samurai and Viper, who were the antagonists of of the arc, blow their base. And yeah, this issue opens with a, a pretty unexpected sudden shift. I remember the first time I read it, I actually went and checked if I'd missed an issue because what we find out is that Shan Koi Man, Karma, the leader of the team, apparently died in the explosion. Well, or at least disappeared. When we first show up, we see the New Mutants kind of rescuing each other. And then they and the X-Men are hunting for her, and they can't find her. She is gone, and they are assuming she's dead. It's a surprisingly dark turn for this book about kids to take. And, I mean, I think that's another thing that's starting here that we'll see more of, is that New Mutants, despite its younger cast, is often a much darker book than X-Men. So... Who shows up at this point? All right, so this is Nina DaCosta, who is Bobby's mom, Roberta DaCosta's mom. She's an archaeologist and an adventurer, and she's kind of awesome. And she's saying, hey, I'm going to go take an archaeological trip to this area called the Madaria, which I'm sure I'm destroying the pronunciation of, which is in the Amazon. Do you kids want to come along? It's convenient that this trip is equipped to bring along, you know, four superpowered teenagers. Wait a minute. Hang on. Hang on. So uh, this is a red-haired woman, clearly an adult, who's bringing kids on a sort of magical adventure to a different area. Wait, wait. So Bobby's mom is Miss Frizzle. I think so. Although they don't actually get on a bus until the next arc. Magic airboat, maybe? Magic airboat action. Magic hovercraft? I do want to talk a little before we move on about Karma's disappearance because it's really abrupt and it's really weird. And this was a book that just like the original X-Men, had its starting five characters. And the original X-Men kept that same cast for years and years and years and years. And New Mutants does for like half a year. 
So what do you think, Rachel? Like, wh- why do you think Claremont chose to have karma just be written out so quickly? I don't know. I will say the karma who appears in the first six issues of New Mutants isn't really the karma I like. She's got significantly different priorities for being there. She doesn't really fit the dynamic of the book, which again is a kid's school hijinks book. And I mean, as much as I love the character Karma, and of course she'll be back, it's X-Men, everyone comes back. And in fact, they already lay the seeds for that in this issue because Claremont is Claremont. Yeah, I think Xavier says that he can sense her alive somewhere, but something's off. And right now, I gotta say, the book really does improve with Karma not a character and with instead the characters who are going to show up soon showing up. By the time she's back, these characters are going to have grown up a little bit. Their own dynamics are going to have changed and she's going to have changed some. And the, the team that she comes back into is I think one she fits into much better. So who's on the team at this point? Okay, so we have uh, four characters with Carmagon at the start of this arc. We have Sam Guthrie, whose uh, codename is Cannonball. He's basically a rocket dude. It was a significant plot point earlier on that he learned to turn for the first time. Yay, Sam. Uh, he is nigh invulnerable when he is blasting. And we'll tell you every issue. We have the character we mentioned before, Roberto Bobby DaCosta, Sunspot. Sunspot can turn into a sort of sunspot-looking form where he is super strong. He is not invulnerable in this form. He is not even, I think, nigh invulnerable, and he can only keep that up for a, a few minutes at a time. He's also a huge Magnum P.I. fan. We also have Danielle Moonstar. And she can call forth like a person's greatest fear or desire as kind of a psychic image, sort of a telepathic hologram. She's also got some sort of telepathy that goes with that, specifically a link with the fourth character when she's in wolf form. That's Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane. She is Scottish, and she can morph between a human form and a wolf form in various intermediate forms. She's the youngest of the group, right? She and Bobby are both around 13, 14. But yeah, so anyway, these characters go off with uh, Nina DaCosta, and they go to Carnival, and um, it's actually kind of adorable. They're all getting kind of dressed up, so we see Rain in this sort of princess dress. Um, Yeah, she totally has a Kaylee moment. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. Uh, And then there's Danny, you know, wearing this really revealing, like, I guess you could call it a dress. Danny is so great. And they're visiting specifically Bobby's parents. So you mentioned his mom. And she's this, you know, adventuring kind of freewheeling archaeologist. His dad is a super ruthless businessman. And one of the first things that we learn about him is that he is being recruited by an organization we have encountered several times before. And that is the Hellfire Club. Bum, bum, bum. Specifically run by Sebastian Shaw. The Hellfire Club kind of fell apart in X-Men. Half of their inner circle is either incapacitated or has gone rogue. Yeah, the Phoenix did a major number on the Hellfire Club after the Hellfire Club did a major number on the Phoenix. This is really more of a business-like Hellfire Club than we've seen. You know, this is sort of them as robber baron business kingpins ruling the economic world from the shadows. Well, we've always seen that at the periphery. I mean, the Hellfire club has two distinct faces there's the sort of weird decadent bondage club hellfire club you know this is part of the same organization it's one that's been hinted at really from the start which is the part that's all about amassing power that's the side of the hellfire club that the new mutants tend to end up interacting with largely because they're minors and having a bondage club in a book that's about a bunch of teenagers is dubious as fuck i mean one can certainly say some things about the way that teenage sexuality is portrayed positively and negatively and well and poorly later on in the book but i think you make it valid point but yeah so they're hanging out at carnival after having this super awkward dinner conversation where bobby's parents yell at each other because his mom is an incredible person and his dad's a total douchebag yeah his dad is super evil his dad is like an 80s movie villain who will later learn how to love except that he never does actually learn how to love he's just a dick pretty much and the new mutants and uh, nina are attacked by the character on the cover of new mutants number seven who i remembered very vividly from my first time reading through the series and his name is axe 
oh, this guy. So he's kind of Mr. T with an axe. And does the axe actually relate to his powers? He's a mutant. We know he's a mutant and he has an axe and his name is Axe. So I'm assuming there's some kind of relation. It's very unclear. So like the Silver Samurai sword? Did he actually ever show up anywhere else or was this mercifully his only appearance? It's the only one I know of. So the deal with this guy, it would be one thing if he was just straight up Mr. T. But I mean, his line's like, I'm Axe. Mess with me. You be chopped down to size. You dig? And... They told me about you and your power, Injun. He calls Danny Injun. It's really uncomfortable, guys. Yeah. He's also working for the Hellfire Club. And we find out that apparently the Hellfire Club's trying to oppress Emmanuel, and Emmanuel wants- With Axe. With Axe. <laughs> uh, specifically by sabotaging this mission to the Medaria because Emmanuel wants, you know, the natural resources to exploit an evil businessy Captain Planet villain kind of ways. The New Mutants defeat Axe, and he's thankfully never heard from again as far as we know, although I'm sure if we're wrong, a listener will, will let us know. We really hope we're not wrong about this. Yeah, and the- Some things should be left to be quietly forgotten until some jerk dredges them up for a podcast. So, yes, the New Mutants uh, do, in fact, head into the Amazon. And now we've talked about the Danger Room reset and Uncanny X-Men. And that's where, after a big storyline finishes, uh, we'll see the X-Men at the beginning of the next issue in the Danger Room, sort of demonstrating their powers and their core personality traits before we get into the next story. And their individual dynamics. And it's, it's a good sort of shorthand approach for that. Something that the New Mutants tend to do, like, they do that too, but it's very rarely in the actual Danger Room. Because for them, the danger room is basically just a gym. It's usually them playing outside or exploring or something like that. When I was reading this, I realized this this reminded me a lot of X-Men First Class, the comics, not the movie. X-Men First Class is kind of taking the original five X-Men and using the tone and dynamics of New Mutants. That I think that might be a lot of why I like it, because I, I mean, I love all the characters, but I do have a special soft spot for those original five. But New Mutants is kind of one of my X books. So if those are things you're after, that's a good book to look up. So yeah, they're, they're running around the Amazon and we are introduced to a number of the people with them, including a man named Evil Mustache Guy. I think he has an actual name, but... Evil Mustache Guy. I don't He's know. He's an evil guy with a mustache. He is working for Emmanuel DaCosta. His job is to sabotage the mission. It's also been made clear that Emmanuel is really okay with the sabotage killing Nina and Bobby if it comes down to it, that his single priority here is business. Yeah, yeah. Once again, Emmanuel Acosta, total freaking douchebag. Totally belongs in the Hellfire Club. Yep, exactly. Things go badly, and uh, after he attempts to feed Danny to piranhas... Which she chases away by exposing them to their greatest fear. We never see what it is. I'm pretty sure it's Adam X, the extreme. Oh, God. I mean, he can set their blood on fire. He's covered in blades. I mean, he's certainly my greatest fear. He probably listens to Limp Biscuit. He's probably in Limp Biscuit in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> There's some fan art I hope someone does. <laughs> it would just be a picture of him. Good point. Uh, yeah, and after that, uh, this e- evil mustache guy, okay, his name is Castro, but evil mustache guy, basically sabotages the boat, so the ship crashes. And then they capture a fake Amazon in blackface. Wow. Yeah. New Mutants does race so well, except when it does it terribly. This arc. Yeah, so what's going on here, basically, is that there are the, these Amazon women running around, and they capture one of them. And, and that's before uh, the ship crashes, because she's on the ship with them. Right. And during which time, actually, uh, Rain, who's having a lot of doubts about uh, you know her place in the world in terms of religion, in terms of the way she feels about her powers, she's just sort of pouring all this out emotionally to this woman who presumably doesn't understand her at all. And Bobby's mother has mentioned that... The these women are using arrows that are from a couple different tribes, not all of which are local to the area. 
that they don't speak any of the local languages. Like there's something weird about this woman already. And then the ship crashes and she's in the water and her blackface washes away. Yeah. And she's a blonde chick. So did they just stumble upon a really distasteful group of, of trick or treaters or what? Oh God. Who just got lost in the jungle and decided to appropriate their way to survival. <laughs> yep. Um, and then just to make things even more confusing, they're captured by Roman centurions. I do love like the rate at which this issue just throws crazy shit at them. And it's all going to be explained, but it's just weird and weird and weird and weird. It escalates really beautifully. It's like, God, it's like the cold open of issues. I, I think it kind of is. They're captured by a group of Roman centurions who take them to what appears to be an ancient Roman city in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. I mean, it's not like this is without precedent. We have dinosaurs hanging out in the Antarctic. This is Nova Roma, which you may recall from a cold open a couple episodes ago. It is at least nominally an ancient Roman colony that never got modern. Now, this is going to be retconned back and forth. Let's just ignore that part. Yeah, for we're now. not going to. We'll talk about that when it becomes relevant. It's not in this arc. And they just they're taken prisoner and they learn that the Amazon they picked up is a girl from this culture. Her name's Mara Aquila. She is fluent in English, which Rain is furious to discover, having spilled her heart out to this girl. And she is the daughter of a senator. Yeah, now that's Senator Lucius Aquila. So he's one of the two rival senators. That's right, it's a senator war in this arc of New Mutants. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday! And the other senator is Senator Gallio. So Senator Aquila, Amara's dad, he wants to preserve the structure of the Republic of Rome. He's sort of a rough but noble dude. Well, he is specifically from the plebeian class. He is a commoner who is now first senator. Nova Roma is is a republic. There's slavery, so it's not exactly the kind of republic that we like, but it's a little more populous than it could be, and it's certainly more populous than Aquila's rival wants it to be. Yeah, and that's Senator Gallio, and he basically wants to turn it into a, a monarchy. Now, he's all smooth and charismatic and attractive and totally evil. And he's also in bed with the Hellfire Club. Those are the motivations of Gallio and Aquila. We also have, of course, Emmanuel da Costa's motivations. He wants the resources of Madaria and doesn't care who dies. And we have evil mustache guy guy's motivation, which is that he wants to do evil things while having a mustache. And you may have noticed that we're missing a DaCosta in that list of motivations, and that's because Nina DaCosta has been lost in the shipwreck. Indeed she has. And so uh, Bobby's, you know, pretty messed up about this, understandably. Right, because his only parent who isn't evil is apparently dead. The boys and the girls are both taken prisoner. The boys are going to be turned into gladiators in the arena. The girls are going to be turned into basically concubines. And at this point, our point of view character becomes Amara. Now, I think this is kind of a ballsy move for Chris Claremont to do because he's just written a main character out of the book and almost immediately he's like, and here's this new character and now you should care about her. But I think he actually kind of sells it. She's really interesting. So here's something that I like a lot about this book. Claremont's been experimenting more with first person points of view at this point. You talked about how well the ensemble cast gets juggled in this. I think a big factor in that is the rotating point of view, that the point of view shifts a lot between characters from story to story. And I think much more than it tends to in X-Men. And yeah, she, she only is uh, the point of view character briefly because then she is captured by a mysterious person who turns out to be Celine, who's the witchy, sorcerer-y nope, wife. Nope, nope, we're not doing Celine this time. We have to talk a little bit about Celine. <sighs> Celine captures Amara. She, Celine's sort of this sorceress lady who's married to Gallio. Everyone's been given lots of drugs to make the boys well, more aggressive. Going back, Selena is specifically the reason that Amara was out disguised by an Amazon, because there's this dark priestess. They don't know who she is. It turns out she's Selene, who's been sacrificing teenage girls. And sometimes, you know, people with the means just sent their teenage daughters out of town to go put on blackface and pretend to be Amazon tribes. Um <laughs> 
this is not an acceptable option. Why not just send them to boarding school? Why not send them to college? Why not send them to like anything else? I, I cannot answer your question. I am not a Nova Roman. Um, Thank God. So yeah, the uh, the arena thing starts to happen, and the pre concubines, uh, Rain and Danny, are brought out to check out this battle between Sam and Roberto. And they are originally drugged, but they are sufficiently shocked by what's happening to, at least in Rain's case, freak out, go into wolf form, and break up the fight. At which point, Galio goes, hey, it's a deity. Oh, they're all deities because they're all using their powers now. Yeah, because Rain has red hair like Caesar, which apparently is combined with the fact that she can turn into a wolf, like the she-wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus, you may remember from middle school history. Uh, That Yeah, clearly these are deities, and he is going to welcome them with open arms, and it's all, of course, a big power play because that's what this guy does. Sam is on to this almost immediately. And I just I just noticed one of your notes in the outline. If he had a mustache, he'd be twirling it. Galio, yeah, he totally would. Yeah, it's true. He's he's ridiculously over the top evil. So Sam is on to him pretty quickly and figures out that he's playing them and he's making some kind of power play. Rain doesn't catch on as fast, and that really surprised me. Because I mean she's she's super religious. She's extremely Christian. You'd think being called out as a Roman god would throw her for a loop. Well, I think part of it is that just that she's so angry at Amara that she likes the idea of supporting the rival of Amara's father. She's so angry at Amara for, you know, basically making her open up and embarrass herself in her view. And plus, there's also the fact that Sam clearly has a crush on Amara, and she has a crush on Sam, and it's all very teenaged. The the details of Nova Roma aren't super important. The important part is this all leads up to a big fight, of course. Yeah, so Celine's got Amara, and then she captures Danny. And Celine is a mutant. Uh, She can control rock. She's also a psychic vampire, and she retains immortal youth by doing the Elizabeth Bathory thing, but with lava. She throws teenage girls into a lava pit, and somehow this gives her the power to, to keep herself young and beautiful forever. Wow, Avon calling. Anyway, yeah, Danny and Amara fight back against Celine, and Amara falls into the lava and comes up as this, like, yellow and red swirly awesomeness. Oh man, can we talk about how fucking visually rad Amara's powers are? Amara gets, like, a magma form. Magma is actually going to be her code name, and she basically turns into amazing op art. That actually reminds me a lot, weirdly, of something that Neil Adams did way, way, way back in the Silver Age. Oh, yeah? There's a specific panel of, I think, Jean Grey pretending to be the Scarlet Witch that reminds me a lot of this. But, a man, Amara's lava form is beautiful, and it's so cool, and it must be so fun to draw. Oh, yeah. Bobby, in the meantime, saves his mother, who he finds in prison. They all end up in the same place. Bobby swings in on a rope because, of course, Senator Aquila ends up killing Senator Gallio. The new mutants go after Celine, and, and they straight up murder her. They do, yeah. They murder um, her so hard. I mean, it doesn't take. They open a giant fissure in the earth, they jam her into it, they fill it with lava, and they close it. Specifically, Bobby throws her in. And I think the the ruthlessness we've seen in his father, I think we see a little bit of that in him here. Something that I completely forgot to mention with the axe story, because I want to go back to this, because this is an important thing about Bobby, is that when his mother and a couple of the other New Mutants characters, I think the girls are kidnapped by axe, he specifically comes up with a plan to rescue them based on what Magnum P.I. would do. I love Bobby DaCosta, and I love how multifaceted he is as a character. I think that's true of all of them. Amara is a newly manifested mutant. She's got powers related to the Earth, related to lava. She can basically create volcanoes. She can take kind of a lava form. And she's got some kind of sort of deep connection to the Earth. And she doesn't really have control over these powers, and they're super dangerous. And ultimately, it's decided that she's going to go back with the new mutants to the Xavier School. So we have an issue where they're basically just vacationing in Ipanema. 
which is a neighborhood in South Rio. We had to Google it. We weren't sure. And now that song is going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the day. I think I had it stuck in my head that it was somewhere in Southern California, although in retrospect, I have absolutely no idea why. And while they're in Rio, uh, two things happen. The first of which is that there's an incident with Amara's powers where they go out of control and she almost destroys the city. The second of which is that Bobby basically breaks ties with his father and there's a great confrontation. And, And an ongoing theme in this is going to be the New Mutants as teenagers, as kids in positions of relative non-power confronting authority figures and confronting very powerful adults that's going to keep coming up yeah i love that scene uh emmanuel's like roberto leave me and it will be as if you never existed i will have no son and bobby replies then sir i am now half an orphan you're not my real dad my real dad's magnum pi (laughs) um someday i'll have a mustache as great as his so yeah they do go back to the xavier school and xavier basically welcomes amara in and she's very overwhelmed by the modern world although she's she's a pretty smart girl i mean she she handles it relatively well Well, nova roma is isolationist but it's not completely cut off from the modern world i mean evil mustache guy brings in guns or mentions you know arms deals and, and technology and it's clear that gallio knows what he's talking about and it's also clear that amara's familiar with technology she's just never been around as much of it as she is in the modern world like cars don't surprise her it's just the concentration of them anyway the new decide hey let's welcome her let's have a barbecue party and uh, amara shows up in this formal gown and everyone else is all you know cutoffs and stuff and she's all embarrassed yeah there's some culture shock and she's having also she's also having trouble with the fact that xavier can you know read her mind which is an understandable thing to be concerned about sam while showing off inadvertently spills some sodas on her she runs away it's really not a good first day at the Xavier School. We're also building up a lot of love triangles. This is, again, a teenager book. And if there's anything we know about teenagers, it's that they all have crushes on each other all the time. Right. So Rain likes Sam. Sam likes Amara. Danny likes Bobby. And Bobby likes everyone. While this drama's going on, we also see Kitty Pride and Doug Ramsey, who I think we mentioned in our last X-Men episode. Well, what we see first is Project Wide Awake, which is the Sentinel program. A Sentinel goes berserk, and it has to be destroyed by Henry Peter Gyrick and Val Cooper. And the reason for that is that Kitty and Doug, just for the hell of it, were like, let's hack the shit out of some government stuff. And so they did. And so they did, and a Sentinel blew up. God, I love them. They are my favorite bros. Is it me, by the way, or does Doug Ramsey look like a total heartthrob? I mean, he's always portrayed as like a a, a real, like like a nerd archetype, but here, he's one suave-looking motherfucker. You know, I was looking at that, I figured out exactly what it is. It's one specific thing. It's that, as drawn by Sal Bashima, Doug Ramsey has Alan Davis hair. Oh, Alan Davis, the yeah, artist he's of got, Excalibur. Yeah, he's got the amazing swoop hair. He totally does. Like, he's pretty normal-looking if you take that aside, but that ups the ante significantly. Well, goddamn. So Kitty heads off from that, and she finds Amara crying in the woods and tries to comfort her, and it really does not work out. Well, because Kitty's not one of the mu- new mutants. She's not close to these guys. She doesn't know them very well. Lots of good I was. It always happens this way. Whenever I try to talk to someone my own age, I screw it up. Outside the X-Men, I don't seem to fit in anywhere. And, you know, the one exception to that she mentions is Doug, because they really click. Because, again, they're the the kids who are smart enough that they don't quite click with their peer group, but aren't really emotionally mature enough to quite be adults. And they have this great friendship and this great dynamic and understanding because of that. So, yeah, Amara at this point is pretty fully integrated into the team. She does eventually come around, get to know the new mutants and Xavier better. And we actually, right after that, have another character joining the team, one that we've talked about before. And that is Ilyana Rasputin, Magic, who is one of my very, very favorites. Yeah, now, around the time these issues were coming out, it was right as the Magic miniseries was finishing up the story which we covered in episode 19 we're now seeing her not officially join the team but starting to work with them so far liana has existed primarily liminally to the teams into the x books for a long time she was she was the little kid who was sort of 
the ward of the X-Men. No one really knows what her powers are at this point, and definitely nobody knows that she is an incredibly, incredibly powerful demon sorceress. I think Kitty might, because they are super close. And Ileana talks at some point about how Kitty is really the only person who knows much about her. They're heavily coded as either very good friends or significantly more. That's something that Sigurd Ellis writes about pretty extensively in the essay Kitty Queer, which is up on our site and which we'll link to in the as mentioned here, because I think it's worth touching on in context of that friendship in particular. Ilyana is very secretive. She doesn't really trust anyone, and she doesn't really quite click or mesh with anyone yet. But she's going to become a member of the team. And right now, she at least is trying to get closer to them. The team decides that Xavier uh, seems very sad. I mean, his space bird girlfriend, Lalandra, has just left Earth, perhaps permanently. And so they're going to throw him a surprise party. That's what really marks this as such a different book from the X-Men, because I don't think the X-Men would get together to throw a surprise party to cheer up Professor Xavier. Well, that's because the X-Men have been told from the start, you know, you're superheroes, you're training to be superheroes. These are kids who are being given space to be kids. And what they do with that space is throw surprise parties to cheer up their teacher because he's sad because they're the best kids. Yeah. So they go to the mall to get supplies and we, they meet the town kids again that they met in, I think, New Mutants number two. And there are more misunderstandings. And it's adorable. Yeah. One, one of the girls. Where are you from, Amy? Rome. No fooling. I've never been to that part of New York, but I hear it's nice. Womp womp. So yeah, they head back to the mansion and um, Ilyana goes inside because Xavier can't read her mind because she's Ilyana. And uh, to see if he's there so they don't spoil the surprise and is attacked by a big purple aardvark looking dude we've seen before, Sim. Sim is a demon from Limbo. He is, in fact, yes, named after Dave Sim and modeled after um, uh, Cerebus the aardvark, Dave Sim's famous creation. As many, 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 many of you wrote to tell us after we did the Magic miniseries. <laughs> You're all totally right. He is a really scary character. He's a character who's specifically built up as looking like this big sort of mascot, cartoonish, friendly guy. What we learned in the Magic miniseries is he is evil as hell. He's super sadistic. One of Ilyana's greatest fears is encountering this guy again. Ilyana actually does beat him with her soul sword. She does ultimately, but at first she just completely freaks out. She goes blank, like, my notes just say in this hella PTSD. Yeah, which is understandable. She wipes the memory after getting an assist from the New Mutants of uh, Stevie Hunter, who was the only one that saw all the magical stuff that she had to do to defeat Sim. And she actually forces Sim to become her servant, which we'll see more of in the future. And that's definitely not going to backfire ever. What could possibly go wrong? You know, we got the brown M&Ms and Ozzy went on stage and put on a great show, which is to say they do end up throwing the surprise party for Professor Xavier. It's very charming. He gets out of his wheelchair for the first time in ages and dances with Ilyana. It's really, it's really heartwarming. I'm sorry. I You just Del Preston that. And I mean, it was beautiful, but it was just like a reset switch in my brain. <laughs> But things don't stay normal and happy for very long. Because this is an ongoing comic book, and normal and happy is not actually that interesting to read. And so the last part of what we're going to be talking about this episode is what happens next, because Doug Ramsey, at the end of this issue with the surprise party, shows up to say, as we already saw in an Uncanny X-Men issue... 180. Hey, uh, the Massachusetts Academy wants me to come and check out their school and maybe be a student there. And Kitty realizes Massachusetts Academy, that's where Emma Frost, the White Queen, runs a school. Crap, crap, crap crap. So, Kitty and Doug, as we learn in, in 180, have gone to check out the school. Kitty's gone with him. Meanwhile, the X-Men and Professor Xavier and most of the rest of the Marvel Universe have been sucked into a 12-issue toy commercial called Secret Wars. 
So they're not around when Ilyana decides she's going to use her magic to check in on Kitty and Doug, who haven't gotten back to them and were supposed to. And she casts a spell, projects her astral form to the Massachusetts Academy and discovers Kitty in a Massachusetts Academy superhero costume because they have those. Can we talk about the Massachusetts Academy superhero costumes? They're amazing. They're purple and pink with this big diagonal line and a triangle. The New Mutants have this sort of black and yellow. It's very quiet and uh, respectable. And then there's just this like fuchsia nightmare that the Massachusetts Academy No, they're, they're New Wave Super Teens. Um, oh, New Wave Super Teens is my new band. Anyway, so Emma Frost sees Ileana's psychic form, banishes her. So at does which Kitty. Point, and so does Kitty, which is interesting. And banishes her, at which point demons start pouring out of Ileana's mouth back at the X-Mansion. The New Mutants freak out. Well, the New Mutants hear a scream and they run into her room and see her sitting in the middle of a pentagram made of light with demons pouring out of her face, which kind of ruins the hiding the fact that she's doing sorcery thing. <laughs> this is like the equivalent of having a secret boyfriend and having your parents walk in on the two of you having sex in their bed. Yes, not like you can have the flaming pentagram and the demons that come out of your face just, you know, crawl out the window or hide under the bed. Well, some of them do actually crawl out the window. So the New Mutants fight them. Eventually, Ileana gets them under control and says, okay, so here's the deal. Yes, I'm a sorceress, but let's not worry about that right now because Kitty Pride is being held captive by a terrible, terrible person. Oh, man, she's so good at deflecting. <laughs> she really is. Like, it's how, how long is it before she actually comes clean about all this stuff? It's a really long time. That's this is one of the many things I, I love and identify with about Ileana is just the brutal tenacity with which she changes the subject when she doesn't want to talk about things. It's true. Initially, the New Mutants are reluctant to go rescue them for a couple reasons, the first of which is that they don't really get along with Kitty. Kitty has made a point of not being one of them. She calls them the ex-babies. She's kind of a jerk to them. Well, and they also don't really trust Ilyana because what the hell, demon's coming out of your face? Yeah, Jesus Christ, man. And also, they're not superheroes. This is not what they do. They have explicit instructions that they are not supposed to do superhero stuff. And if there's a superhero emergency, then the X-Men aren't there. They call the Avengers. They call the Fantastic Four. Unfortunately, because of Secret Wars, none of those guys are picking up the phone. I mean, could they call, like, I don't know, Power Man and Iron Fist? Or, uh, I mean, Ms. Marvel's around, right? They could call her Dazzler. I feel like there should be other options. I assume they don't have those guys' phone numbers. So, Ileana convinces the New Mutants that they need to go rescue Kitty and Doug. And she does this because Kitty is, at this point, her only really good friend. And she's really worried about her, and she's really worried about losing that sort of lifeline and that connection to the real world. When it comes down to it, Amara's actually the one to say, hey, the honorable thing to do is to rescue this person. Come on, she goes to your school. Let's do this, guys. Also, they're totally secret girlfriends. And so, yes, they go and take the bus, because that's all they really have the option of doing. Rain and Bobby are kind of fucked up, and they're kind of fucked up because of something that happened in Marvel Team-Up number six involving Cloak and Dagger that we're not going to go into right now. We'll get to that later, and it's going to actually tie directly into the New Mutants later. Uh, Marvel Team-Up annual number six, technically. Oh, my God. Yeah, that. And Rain, she sees Ilyana, who's clearly got some demonic shit going on. Yeah, Ilyana is a straight-up demon sorceress, and she is, Rain, you'll remember, was raised super religious and extreme Protestant cult. Yeah, and uh, so she's like, I see this evil girl here, and I see myself in her. I see that that wickedness within me, too. And this is the part where Sam Guthrie, best kid TM, does exactly what he should, which is to comfort her and say, hey, I was raised really Christian, too, and I think I, my faith is, is probably just as strong as yours is, but God does mysterious stuff. We don't always know why. Mutant is a label like colored used to be. It doesn't matter. What's important is how you live your life. 
life. Which is charming when it's said in the early 80s by a teenager and much less charming when it's insisted on by Havoc like last year. Well, there there is that. Identity that was politics less cool. are in a different place these days. But it works in this context. And he basically offers to adopt her into his family, which he totally should because the Guthries are great. She lies with angels by Chuck Austin aside. Yeah, um, the Guthries are still great. It's just a bad story. I, you know, we talked about how what this arc really does well is to start establishing the dynamics between the characters in a really defined and believable way. Way. And the Sam Guthrie and Rain Sinclair friendship is one of my favorites. Yes, she has a big crush on him, but they're just really good, solid, genuine friends. You know, I want to talk about that for a sec because we've t- we talked about it with Kitty and Doug, and we talked about how everyone's got crushes on everyone in this book. But one of the things I really like about this is that there are crushes that are unresolved, that resolve into and exist and coexist with really good friendships. And that's something you don't see a lot in books in general, and it's something you definitely don't see a lot in books about teenagers. And it's something that for me is again, a huge point of identification with this, because if you have a social group like that, that's that's going to be a thing. And that's a thing that either splits up the social group or that you figure out a way to work through. And the New Mutants do it almost every time. I mean, yes, there's a lot of relationship drama, but they deal with it because they're a team and they're friends. And that's really great to see. And, you know, I, even in the modern age, this is the team with the strongest collective team identity. The original five have been all over the place. They've been on a million teams. They've gone in a million different directions. The original New Mutants are so tight, even when they're not on a team. Like, they've got that same solidarity and that same all-for-one, one-for-all sense later on that you see being built here, and I love that. Unfortunately, that does not save them from being tricked and captured by Emma Frost and uh, basically imprisoned. They escape pretty quickly, but the White Queen, of course, sends her own Hellfire goons after them, and I'd like to point out, these are Gil and Art. I've met Harvey and Janet, and you, sirs, are no Harvey and Janet. These guys just really do not measure up to clearly the greatest Hellfire goons and their complex, nuanced backstory, which I'm sure will be written in a miniseries at some point in the future. And there's a great scene earlier on with Kitty and the White Queen that I wanted to go back to because it is a fantastic scene for both of them. It's a fantastic establishment of their dynamic, which kind of continues through today. She's trying to convince Kitty to join the Hellfire Club, trying to sort of break her into doing it. And on one hand, she wants to mind control her. But on the other hand, she's just there. She's talking about how she ended up there, that with mastermind, he confronted me with illusions so terrible, horrors so primal and personal that my mind retreated into a catatonic state, a living death from which he believed I'd never wake. His assumption was that I lacked both the strength and the courage to drag myself out of that abyss. He was wrong. And for me, that's such a seminal, definitive White Queen statement. That refusal to let anybody else control or define her ever, that's absolutely Emma Frost. And that's the character we'll see as she later on joins the X-Men and becomes, well, I guess you could say hero. I think she becomes a hero. Oh, yeah, she's, she definitely becomes a hero. In the meantime, the New Mutants, they you know split up and sneak around and do end up confronting Emma Frost, and they are soundly beaten by her students, the Hellions. And we're going to talk more about the Hellions later. There are uh, six of them, Thunderbird, Roulette, Cat's Eye, Jetstream, Tarot, and Empath. And they are pretty much exactly the evil New Mutants. They're not they're not even actually all that evil, I'd say, except for Empath. They're just kind of the rival school at this point. Yeah. Now, the only two that are really going to be important to talk a little bit more about right now are Thunderbird, who's the younger brother of John Proudstar, the original Thunderbird who died shortly after the formation of the new X-Men, and then Empath, who can control people's emotions and is really self-centered and sadistic and a total unredeemable jerk. He is terrifying. He's also interesting, and he's going to become gradually more interesting. Right now, he's just really scary. Let's see. Jetstream is basically 
cannonball, powers-wise. Roulette can manipulate fate with, you know, good and bad luck. Tarot can take cards out of a tarot deck and cause them to manifest in reality, which again is a really object-specific power. Cat's Eye is set up as an analog to Wolfsbane, and she turns into a giant cat, and she is charming. She's she's kind of indifferent like a cat is. She doesn't care about morality or good guys or bad guys. She just wants to enjoy herself. Rain is a character who's really sort of torn between the wolf and human identities. Cat's Eye defaults to her cat form and she hates being human she hates being in a human body she feels awkward she feels off and she thinks in much simpler syntax and thinks much more like a cat she's much more sort of feline and bestial than than wolfsbane is even as a human yeah and so uh they all fight and danny and Ilyana. Ilyana teleports away and drags danny with her they end up in limbo after they sort of get their bearings and come on back, they realize it's been a year and they see the remaining new mutants in Hellions uniforms, all buddy-buddy with the Hellions. They're like, wait, what happened? We overshot because Ilyana's powers can take her through time as well. And that's where we first actually learn that for certain. And so they give it another shot, end up there a week later, and meet up with the new mutants to let them out just in time to get captured themselves. Now, at this point, the Hellions show up in the middle of the night and say, hey, you know, we're all here because we want to be. You guys aren't. Some of us aren't cool with that. Man, I like the Hellions so much. I do, too. Yeah. They're fun. They're, again, they're very much the rival school, not the villains. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they say, hey, here's how this is going to work. Let's have, like, a duel between a champion from each of our teams. If you guys win, you can go free. And the New Mutants say, well, okay, that sounds great. And it's pointedly not to the point of death and not to the point of serious injury. They're very, very clear on that. And they decide it's going to be Cannonball and Jetstream, presumably because they have the most directly analogous powers, I guess. I guess so. But Cannonball ends up winning. And then at that point, Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw show up and say, kids, who told you you could make this deal? No, 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 no. This is not going to happen. Let's go back to your prison, New Mutants. Kitty at that point faces through some machinery, blows the place up. They do, in fact, all escape. And I want to talk a little bit about how they trick their way through the new mutants earlier, specifically Amara, because at this point, so she can create lava, she can manipulate Earth. Power wise, she does two things. She makes volcanoes and she's basically a horda. A horda? Like from Star Trek? Like early Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. Like she just she makes these perfectly round smoldering tunnels through everything. And then she says, no kill eye? Yeah, after she's attacked, because it turns out that these silicon nodules that the Hellions have been harvesting are actually her eggs. I think we're really mixing pop culture metaphors here. Oh, come on. So anyway, they do make their escape, and the issue actually ends with everything being fine, and then Danny seeing a vision of the demon bear spirit, which is what we're going to talk about in a few episodes the next time we cover the New Mutants, the demon bear saga, the beginning of the epic art run by Bill Sienkiewicz, and uh, when New Mutants just goes from being pretty good in this story to really, really good. I am so excited about this. We sat down to start talking about this, and we're just talking about, oh my god, we're going to get to the Demon Bear saga. This is going to be so good. This is so cool. But you know, this arc is so good, too. Like, these are the new mutants that we know, and they're turning into the new mutants that are our favorite best new mutants. I love this stuff so much. This oh, is so too. good. Yeah. I, with, with the notable exceptions of the really, really dubious racial politics of the Nova Roma series. Oh, my God. We'll do like a phantom edit kind of thing. It's new mutants minus Axe minus the blackface Amazon stuff. It's going to be much better. Uh, in the meantime, however, you've got questions. ZSP emailed us to ask, hey, guys, loving the podcast. Thank you. I was wondering if you knew what was up with the pretty evident connection between the X-Men's Hellfire Club and the one from the Avengers, the 60s British spy TV series, not those other guys. There are too many similar 
similarities in plot and trappings, secret society for the rich and powerful, 18th century outfits, female lead brainwashed into aiding the club and simultaneously dressing up in bondage gear, character named Emma, to be coincidence. Do you have any insight into what happened there? Uh, so, yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, well, and it's sort of correct. They're both based on the same thing. That's right. Because, so there's a book that, Rachel, you've mentioned it a number of times called Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. So I'm just going to read a little uh, quote from this. Um, It says the Hellfire Club is, quote, based on a real-life English secret society given to week-long orgies in the bowels of a desecrated church. That's so awesome! That's actually really awesome. The Hellfire Club had earlier been fictionalized on a 1966 episode of the British television show The Avengers, in which Emma Peel went undercover with a spiked dog collar, corset, and whip. It was from this leather-intensive vision that the Claremont and Byrne edition took its visual cues. So the answer is sort of yes and no, in that um, aesthetically it's based on the version of the Hellfire Club and the Avengers, but that is based on, you know, this actual secret society. Yeah, so the more you know. Okay, second question. Zachary Smith asks on our blog, why do modern Marvel comics change artists so often? I especially noticed it on Aaron and Bacallo's run of Wolverine and the X-Men and found it really distracting to the story. Is there a good reason? There is a good reason. There are actually a number of reasons. And while I can't speak to sp- specifically to how Marvel handles this, I can talk about this some as a comics editor. When you're scheduling a comic series, it takes usually significantly longer than a month to draw an issue. And so if you've got a monthly book coming out, there's only so far out you can schedule with one artist. Again, that depends on how fast that specific artist or that specific art team works. It includes accounting for or maybe not accounting for emergencies, holidays, conventions, things that may or may not come up. And the fact that on on a work for hire gig, and especially in comics, there's a decent chance that artists are going to be doing other work as well and be balancing an ongoing book with other deadlines. Right now, a lot of Marvel X books are semi-monthly. They're coming out twice a month. For something like that, to keep that up, you've got to either alternate artists or have fairly fast turnover. Sometimes it's possible to account for that and do it smoothly. Like Uncanny X-Men is right now with Chris Bacallo and Chris Anka, who work in very similar styles and so can just switch off issue by issue. But again, I would imagine that's still a pretty grueling schedule and probably not a particularly forgiving one. With Wolverine and the X-Men, one of the things I noticed, a lot of the artists on it were artists who were also working on other X-Books or who were going to be coming into longer runs on other X-Books. So again, that there are, you know, there are other reasons that an artist might be pulled off a book as well. So the answer is kind of a lot of things, but ultimately, and above all, it probably comes down to scheduling. So uh, I do want to give a quick shout out. We will have just wrapped up by the time this episode goes live our stealth and plainclothes cosplay contest on our blog. Guest judged by the aforementioned Chris Anka, who is the master of X-Men fashion. And uh, if you haven't been checking out Rachel and Miles review the X-Men, which are the weekly video reviews we do of all the X-Books that come out that week, we actually have done the last couple of those in uh, stealth and plainclothes cosplay ourselves. I'm very, very proud of my awful Adam X outfit. I gotta say, I am I am a little bit more into your outfit this week just because I embrace the obscurity. There is that. So yeah, I guess you can see if uh, you can dis- discover who I am in my heart of hearts. I also found the best sunglasses of all the sunglasses, so that's pretty exciting. Which is saying something for an aficionado like you. I have sunglasses feels. Yes. Now, those are both on our website where you can also find regular features, written posts. We mentioned Kitty Queer in this episode. There's also a lot more going on there. Um, art and additional content and visual companions to every episode. New episodes go up Sunday at rachelandmiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher. Our show is produced in Portland, Oregon by Bobby Roberts. Uh, he's on his own podcasts, which are Welcome to That Whole Thing, and he's on Full of Sith. This podcast, as well as that additional content on the website and the video reviews, are made possible by our awesome, awesome Patreon supporters. You can become one of those via patreon.com. We also ask if you're enjoying the podcast that you take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. Join us next time for Rogue's Existential Angst, a familiar time travel 
Traveler, A Big Change for Storm, and more freaking Celine. See you then. Yeah.